Hello, survivalists. This is the Crux True Survival Stories. I am your host, Casey McIntosh, joined by Julie Henningsen. Julie is going to be leading the story for us today. How's it going, Julie? Great, Casey. Welcome. Welcome, Casey. Welcome, listeners, to another heart-pounding episode of The Crux. Um, Today, we're going to take you on a harrowing journey to one of nature's most awe-inspiring but perilous playgrounds, the towering summit of Half Dome in Yosemite National Park. Casey, have you ever been to uh, Half Dome in Yosemite? I have never been there, but I think I should go. I think it's those places that you've got to go at least one time in your life. Yeah, I agree. It's a beautiful national park. Busy in the sun. Well, busy anytime, but something that you you have to see to believe. So recently in the news, this just happened probably less than two weeks ago, there were a group of hikers that were injured by lightning on the summit of the Half Dome. I thought this would be a great uh, opportunity to just talk about lightning because did you know that lightning kills more people than any other natural disaster except for maybe flash floods? That's surprising, especially because, you know, there's the saying, it's like getting struck by lightning, which you only say if it's a rare occurrence. Exactly. Yeah. Today we're going to embark on an unforgettable journey up Half Dome where lightning strikes not once, but twice. And where our survivors have to show courage and resilience to make it out alive. Hiking up Half Dome in Yosemite National Park is one of the most popular and challenging hikes in the park. I've done this hike myself, but it was a long time ago. And I can remember the end of the hike, but there's a lot more to it than just climbing up the rock dome itself. Half Dome is an iconic granite monolith in Yosemite. It rises nearly 5,000 feet above Yosemite Valley. And it's one of the park's most renowned landmarks. The hike itself begins at the Happy Isles Trailhead and starts through a forest landscape, following the Mist Trail or the John Muir Trail. And along the way, you pass several waterfalls, including the spectacular Vernal Falls and Nevada Falls, popular, well-known waterfalls in Yosemite. And as the ascent continues, the terrain gradually shifts to steeper inclines. The hike becomes more challenging through kind of a subalpine landscape of Little Yosemite Valley. But the most well-known and challenging part of the hike, and the part that I remember from doing it so long ago, is undoubtedly the ascent of the famous Half Dome Cables. So you're basically just climbing, or hiking I should say, it's not really a climb, but a hike, a steep hike, up this granite shoulder with cables installed into the rock to provide handholds to pull yourself up. About the final 400 feet of terrain is alongside these cables. And it's pretty tricky. It demands physical strength, mental fortitude. It's steep. You have to have the right kind of shoes on, the right kind of grip. And you can imagine when the rock gets wet in rain and stormy weather, it creates um, slip hazards but there are some footholds carved into the rock. And when you reach the summit, the view is spectacular, stretching as far as you can see across the Yosemite Valley, seeing all kinds of high Sierra peaks on a clear day, which is really the only time you wanna be up there, as you'll hear in this story. It's just an incredible view. Did you recently hear about the elderly gentleman that climbed up there? 
No, I haven't. On July 27th, a 93-year-old became the oldest person to summit Yellowstone's half dome. Oh, that's incredible. That's so cool. Yeah. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, that's amazing. That's really great. Yeah. Everett Callen, a retired theology professor from Oakland, California. He reached the top with the help from his 57-year-old son, John, and his 19-year-old granddaughter, Sydney. Go Everett. I love that story. So cool. And I'm impressed. It's not that simple. I remember thinking, wow, this is more than I thought it would be. Nowadays, you have to get, there's a lottery to even get a permit to go up it. Just like everything else, you know, it's so busy. So you can't just go to Yosemite and hike to the top. You have to apply and a pass or a permit. What's really sad is that that kind of limiting access just makes me want to not do anything like that. It's unfortunate. Yeah. And it also is just a testament to how crowded it probably is on a busy day. Even if you do get your name pulled in the lottery, you're up there with a traffic jam on the cables. Right. I was just thinking about how limiting that could be in terms of how much time it would take. Because you never know who's going to be hiking up there and you might end up behind 93-year-old Everett, which could take four times as long as you anticipate. Yeah. Pros and cons in that. Could take a little bit longer, but get to chat with Everett. That'd be pretty fun. (laughs) That's true. So September 21st was the day for a group of friends from Wyoming that had gone to Yosemite National Park with the goal of hiking Half Dome, among other things. Uh, Members of the group included Jordan Dean and his girlfriend, Jordan Swendener, two Jordans, and their friend, Josh Van Dyke, amongst a few other friends. So the group set out in the morning on September 21st, and they checked the weather, and it looked like it was going to be decent, no red flags. So they headed up the hike, and... Josh Van Dyke recalled that they reached the summit around 12.30 in the afternoon. So decent time of day. They didn't plan to spend a lot of time on the summit, just to take a look around, take some photos. But pretty quickly, they saw storm clouds moving in, as did other folks that were up there, other hikers um, that had made it to the top. And so within a short period of time, uh, most of the hikers had turned around and started to descend to get out of the way of this oncoming weather. And that group of people all trying to descend at once kind of created a little bit of a bottleneck, as you can imagine, on these cables with footholds where you're walking backwards and trying not to slip in the rain and probably a little bit mentally challenged by staying focused on not slipping and falling. Are there cables for ascending and descending or is everyone using the same cable system? Yeah, that's a good question. I feel like it's one cable system, but that's just my memory, which begs the question, how are you going up and down at the same time? So that's something I'm not sure of. I'd have to dig deeper on that, but I picture just one system. So maybe you are passing folks. So this group of friends, knowing that there were a lot of people trying to descend and things were moving really slowly, decided to try and wait out the storm at the summit. And they found a cave that they piled into to try and stay out of the way of the lightning. And that might not have been a bad call because shortly after they made that decision, they heard a woman scream and later learned that one of the hikers fell on the descent, 
had a bad fall on the descent and um, later had to be rescued by helicopter. That's kind of intense. I'm sure that all of the haste to get out of there probably precipitated that fall, just being worried about getting struck by lightning. Yeah, the haste and the, the wet conditions. So storms come up often in the Sierra, as you might imagine, in any kind of mountain terrain, especially in the afternoon. And Yosemite warns hikers not to attempt the cables if storm clouds are visible, um, even if they seem to be far away. So who knows how far away these clouds were when they were coming up the cables, but nonetheless, the storm descended on them pretty quickly and pretty unexpectedly. So they were in the cave for not long and lightning struck. Jordan Dean was struck by lightning and he described it as feeling like household voltage um, or like somebody punched him in the knee. He was struck in the knee by the first strike, seemingly sort of low voltage. But then shortly after, lightning struck again. And it was striking the rock at the top of the cave and just coming right through the cave. The second time it struck, it was a lot worse. They saw flashes, everything lit up all at once, bright white light in the air. And not only was Jordan Dean struck, but his friend Josh Van Dyke was also struck by lightning on his head. His hair was singed. And they later determined that the lightning had exited through his foot. And there was a little wound on his foot and a hole in his sock. So the bolt entered through his hair on his, well, the bolt entered through his head and exited through his foot. That is just a chilling thought and puts my hair on end a little bit. <laughs> yes. So even worse, there was another person in the cave with them that wasn't part of their group that was struck at that moment as well. And um, immediately after was unresponsive, unconscious in the cave. He was hunched over, kind of went limp, fell to the side. And that was just very terrifying for the group. There were members of the group trying to wake him up, trying to rouse him. Somebody started doing CPR. And miraculously, he woke back up eventually kind of regained consciousness and opened his eyes and miraculously came back to life. Maybe he had an arrhythmia. That would be my guess. Yeah, an arrhythmia, or he could have had just a disabled respiratory drive, which is something I know is not uncommon with lightning victims, is even if their cardiac rhythm stays normal and adequate, they can have problems with respirations. So knowing that, providing not only CPR, but good and sometimes prolonged rescue breathing in a scenario like this can be really important and life-saving, more so than other types of outdoor emergencies. That's really interesting. It just causes respiratory suppression. Yeah, it just disables the respiratory drive in the brain and the communication with the diaphragm. There actually have been reported cases of lightning victims who received prompt rescue breathing, not CPR, but just rescue breathing because they had a pulse, they had a normal cardiac rhythm, but weren't breathing. So they received rescue breathing for up to 24 hours after the incident and they survived. They spontaneously started respirating on their own. And because they were getting those ventilations during that time, they survived. Wow, that's a really good thing to know. Yeah, practical information. So 
The lightning had struck twice now. There were three victims and everyone was just on edge, not knowing if it was gonna strike again or how badly these folks were injured or what kind of aftermath was gonna fall out from the situation that they were in. But ultimately uh, the weather passed and the two most critically injured folks, the one that was unconscious and the one that got the lightning bolt to the head, um, regained consciousness and were disoriented. They couldn't remember how they got up there, where they were. They had this kind of altered mental status, but they were you know, awake and talking. And after about 30 minutes, actually able to stand up and start to um, join the rest of the group on a planned descent. At this point, they felt confident kind of heading out of the cave and making their way back towards the cables to descend. It took about half an hour, 45 minutes for the amnesia that these victims were experiencing to fade away. And within a really pretty short period of time, you know, their memory restored and could recall how they got there and, and what was happening around them. So in the scheme of things, a pretty short-lived period of diminished mental status, I would say. Lucky. I wonder if that has something to do with the fact that the lightning was striking the ground and then getting to them indirectly, as opposed to right, if you were standing on the mountaintop and you got struck by lightning from with, without any type of protection, if it would have been worse. Yeah, like, that's a great question, but it almost sounds like the bolt came right through the rock and it certainly was diminished by having traveled through the rock, but then left the rock and hit them. It's unclear if it was ground, more ground current or a direct strike that affected the person that ended up unconscious, but I imagine it was something more like you said, like ground current with a little bit less intensity, a direct strike bolt of lightning to a person who says standing upright and just gets struck by a bolt directly. Uh, just for reference, that's 200 million volts of electricity, about 30,000 amps and a household amp outlet is 15 amps for perspective. And we all probably know what it feels like to get a little zap from a household outlet. It's not fun. Um, it can be up to 14,000 degree Fahrenheit. So, you know, just the heat and the blast alone can be enough to fatally injure somebody, let alone the direct strike. That is absolutely crazy. Terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. So the fact that these two victims eventually woke back up in a pretty short period of time. They probably weren't receiving that much of a charge. Pretty miraculous, really. Really miraculous. So as they made their way down the dome, it was still drizzling and the rocks were wet um, and they were really proceeding with caution because of the slippery terrain. They didn't get far down the cables and they came across a group of women who had pretty much stopped mid-descent um, because of the storm. Um, these women were too scared to go any further because they felt like their shoes weren't grip, grippy enough and that a fall off the side of the dome was imminent. So uh, Jordan Dean said that he gave them the advice and to stay where they were and wait for a rescue team. And this is after that the one woman had already fallen and been rescued off the climb. But one of the members of this group felt like she had enough grip on her shoes to try and proceed with the descent. So she was going for it. And sure enough, right where they were, she slipped and fell, lost her balance and 
slipped down the rock about 20 or 30 feet. She was only stopped by basically falling off Half Dome um, because she hit a rock ledge that kind of stopped this fall. A fall that far could kill you anyway if you hit your head in the right location. Yeah, exactly. And it was it was scary for them because she didn't move at first when she came to a stop. She was laying there for a bit. So everyone was just feeling really helpless and scared. But fortunately, there was a rescue a rescuer there who had been there to save the other woman who previously fell. And that rescuer was able to attend to the second woman. And it's unclear how she did or how she made her way down, but she was at least taken care of. They finally made it to the bottom without further incident and ultimately made it home and made it to uh, several media interviews to tell this story. There are a lot of potential medical problems that can arise as a result of a lightning injury, even days later, including um, neurological impairments, seizures, psychiatric disorders that can be long-term are not uncommon um, for folks that survive lightning incidents, you know, burns, obviously, vision impairment from the bright light of the bolt of um, lightning, eardrum damage, and then the cardiac and respiratory stuff that we already talked about, which fortunately um, this group didn't experience for very long anyway. Were either of those men that had the more significant lightning strikes, did they go to utilize any healthcare services afterwards? Yeah, I'm not sure if they did. I certainly hope they did. My guess is probably so because of, at the very least, these wounds that there are pictures of on the internet. They're not very impressive. They're actually pretty subtle, but that's a good question. Um, so Half Dome, is, this isn't the first incident that's hap happened on Half Dome. There have been some even fatalities before. Seven people have fallen to their death from these cables over the years, over many years. So that's maybe not a big number compared to how many people use them every day. Uh, most recently, a 29-year-old woman from Arizona fell from the cables in 2019. And in 1985, seven strike. And in 1985, seven hikers were struck by lightning on the summit in similar conditions to this story. And two of them didn't survive, two of whom died on the summit. That was all on the same day? Yeah. Well, all on the same incident. Yep. There was a lightning strike that killed a hiker in 1972 and another in 2011. Um, in, in 2011, there was a woman who died during a lightning storm after a slip and fall from the cables. So double whammy on that one. So what do we know about lightning? This is a good topic. There's a lot of myths surrounding it. I remember being taught that, I remember hearing at one point that a safe thing to do in a lightning storm is to go seek shelter near a tall tree in the quote, cone of protection that a tall tree offers. But what do you think, Casey? Good idea or bad idea to stand next to a really tall tree in a lightning storm? I would say being by a tree is probably okay, but I would stay away from the tallest tree and make yourself as small as possible. That's what I was always told at least, like you don't wanna be the tallest object. And if you're by the tallest tree, then you're probably going to be next in line to get hit after the tree. Like if you're on water and there's lightning, then you're really in trouble. Yeah, I think you're right, Casey. If you're on water, you're really in trouble. Interestingly, though, if you're on water in the bottom of a deep canyon, you're actually pretty okay. That seems to be a safe place, even on water, just because it's a, such a narrow 
opening for lightning to actually access and get to where you are. So water, other kind of a river at the base of a deep canyon is an unsafe place to be. And I definitely agree with what you said about being next to the tall tree. You probably wouldn't get struck by lightning directly, but you'd certainly have likely significant trauma from the tree being blasted into a million pieces by a lightning strike right next to you, which would certainly be enough to end you as well. So the best place to be if a lightning storm is imminent and you don't have an opportunity to get to safer ground or to go indoors is in a relatively flat terrain um, stand of evenly height trees where the trees are taller than you are. So it just spreads out the possible options of what will be struck next and makes it less likely that it's going to be you or the tree that you happen to be standing next to. And I think you also mentioned this concept of the lightning position where you make yourself small, ideally standing on an insulated layer of something between you and the ground to protect you against ground current, like a pack or a pad or something um, that doesn't have metal stays in it or any type of conductive material. And if you crouch down low in a, a small ball crouching position, it also decreases the possibility of, even if you are injured with ground current or lightning strike, decreases the possibility of it traveling completely through your entire body head to foot like it did the um, Josh Van Dyke in our story today. You can minimize the injuries that you might endure even if you are struck in that position. What about the idea of giving CPR to somebody who's been struck by lightning, are they going to hold a charge? If you go over there and start um, giving CPR, are you going to get shocked? That's another claim I've heard made. What do you think of that one, Casey? Well, there's no continued source of energy once the lightning strike is over. So I would say false. False. Myth busted. Get in there. <laughs> start rescue breathing. Start doing CPR. Save a life. Because the chances of CPR and rescue breathing being actually helpful and effective are higher in this situation than your run-of-the-mill airport cardiac victim who needs CPR from a pre-existing heart problem. Except in the incident at the airport, you probably have an AED where you most likely don't have one on the top of a mountain. Ooh, true. So true. <laughs> That's really what you need at the end of the day. So good point. Good point. Here's another myth, the idea that metal attracts lightning. It doesn't really attract. It conducts it, but doesn't attract it any more than the next tall object. That's interesting. I didn't know that. So some of the things to think about, basics for preventing any of this happening in the first place, is just knowing where you're traveling. And if you're in the mountains, planning to be done with your hike or your climb by the end of the day, by the afternoon, knowing weather patterns, um, having a lightning plan, talking about it before you find yourself in a situation like that, being prepared with your gear and your footwear, your, you know right amount of water and food to stay out longer than you intended and so forth, first aid kits, things like that. Picking safe terrain for pitching a tent and camping at night. And yeah, just being ready to pull the trigger to turn around when you see a storm, even off in the distance in these kinds of environments, hearing thunder, you know, that's a good indication to turn around and head for safe ground, which is how people get into trouble is not listening to that instinct. 
Yeah. It's interesting that you say that because just thinking about Glacier National Park and climbing some of the peaks there, I've certainly been on some of those peaks or hiking on days where there's been clouds in the sky and I never have even considered lightning. Granted, some of those days were just cloudy and no storm actually ended up occurring, at least during the day that I was hiking, but it's just something I haven't really given a lot of thought to in the past. What about you, Julie? Well, an interesting statistic about lightning, Casey, Florida, Florida is the deadliest state. There's more deaths by lightning injury in Florida than any other state. Texas is a close second. And I would say it is on my radar because I spent a harrowing night on a sea kayaking trip on the Florida coast where a lightning storm came in the evening, lasted all night long. And I just, you know, started out in lightning position in my tent, waiting for this to pass and ended up, of course, not being able to maintain that position very long. So ultimately laying down on my Ensolite pad, but just awake all night long, kind of thinking about how this could go sideways. Fortunately, it didn't. I was with a group of people and everybody did fine, but it definitely put the fear in me for listening to the weather and thinking about a lightning plan. So does Florida just have more lightning storms because they get more rain? They just get more of that type of weather pattern? Is that what you think? Well, I'm not sure they have more lightning storms. They just have the most deaths by lightning. And so one thought is it's because people get struck golfing out on a golf course is a, you know, a high risk place to be because you're the tallest thing around. Um, so it, it may be because there's a lot of golfers in Florida. I don't know that that's why, but that's what I thought of when I read that statistic. 30% of people who are involved in a lightning strike injury uh, do not survive. So 70% do survive. That's pretty good odds. And 92% of deaths that occur by lightning are between the months of May and September. So it's definitely a, obviously a summertime thing when people are outside. 52% um, of people who have died by lightning injury were playing, recreating outdoors, and 25% were working, occupational injuries. So that's another risk. And then the last statistic I have for you is 74% of lightning uh, victim survivors reported suffering unspecified, quote, permanent disabilities from the incident. So that could be a really wide spectrum of things from hearing loss to psychological problems to traumatic injuries that didn't heal fully. Or like nerve pain. I wonder if people suffer from peripheral neuropathy kind of symptoms. Yeah. Yep. Could be nerve pain, burn injuries could result in that kind of pain as well. So I have a question for you, Julie, that I was wondering when we were talking earlier, if you were with the group in the cave and you were not one of the injured people and you were headed down, would you have called rescue services or would you have like, say I was the person that got struck by lightning. Would you just tell me like, Oh, if you feel fine, you're probably fine to descend. Because it almost seems a little bit risky to just make that assumption in that moment that especially the person that was not breathing or slumped over in the cave, even though they're seemingly fine in the moment, that just seems like an unnecessary risk. But I don't know. What was your opinion about that? Yeah. So that's such a great question. And I'll answer it from the kind of wilderness medicine instructor part of me. One of the concepts that I teach often in my trainings is that if somebody can 
self-evacuate than they should with basically two exceptions. So if, if they can walk out, even if you're sort of standing behind them, you know, prodding them along, that's usually going to be the best way to go versus calling for help. And two exceptions to that might be if you suspect cardiac chest pain, they can walk, but they're telling you have chest pain. You're worried they're having a heart attack. I would probably call for help in that situation, even if they could walk. And then another one might be a snake bite, a pit viper envenomation. If I suspect an envenomation, a pit bite, viper snake bite, having that person walk on that injury could be problematic in terms of their outcome. So is your thought process just the time that it takes rescuers to get to you is too long, considering the fact that maybe you can get down faster? Yeah, that's definitely one consideration. And then the other consideration is the risk to the rescuers. You know, if you're going to ask for a helicopter to take off, just the nature of that helicopter taking off the ground, you're putting people's lives at risk in, in any situation. So I would be really hesitant to ask for that level of resources and that level of intervention and risk, oh, unless I really felt like it was needed. I'm worried about loss of light or limb or eyesight or something that's going to you know, really irreparably affect the quality of somebody's life. That's I think there's word. a, yeah, I think there's a thought process for folks that haven't been in these situations that, oh gosh, you know, if I get to the bottom of the Grand Canyon and can't get out, I'll just call a helicopter or this idea of call for an evacuation. Um, there's just so much more that goes into it than folks might realize if they've never been a part of that on either the front end or the back end. So yeah, it's a pretty demanding resource intensive call and I think if you don't need it, don't, I wouldn't ask for it. Right. And the thing is a lot of times people are probably not thinking about the rescuers and what they're putting themselves through in order to save them. Um, so that is a really good perspective. What's difficult is that in that instance of the person that was struck by lightning, they might be fine for the first five minutes and then they might be seizing while they're on a cable. You know what I mean? I guess, I guess you take a risk either way. Yeah, that's a good point. You take a risk either way. So I think you just take it one step at a time. If you think, okay, feels like we can make forward progress. Let's go with that as our plan, but be ready to change our plan at any moment as the conditions change. This is why working at a remote hospital setting makes me cringe because you're going to be always in that situation when somebody comes in with some type of traumatic injury or heart attack or something, you have to make that decision. Do I call the helicopter to get this person transferred to a higher level of care? Or do I try to manage this here? And that seems really daunting to me. Agreed. That's why I just love these like decision-making algorithms. It's the way my mind works. I just need an analytical. If yes, if A, then B, then, you know, C. And it also helps right. you think when you're in a high anxiety situation where um, your ability to, to reason and problem solve and have good judgment is challenged by the emotions surrounding the situation you're in. Yeah. So moral of the story is that we just need an algorithm for almost everything. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> yes. It would be so helpful. Okay. So there you have it, Casey, my shocking story of survival on Yosemite's Half Dome. Before we wrap up today, we'd like to ask you for your support in spreading the word about the Crux True Survival Stories. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to visit our Instagram page at the Crux. Our Instagram page at the Crux Podcast. We encourage you to share our latest post on. We encourage you to share our latest post on your stories. 
help us reach more fellow survival enthusiasts and storytellers. If you haven't already, please consider leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Your feedback means the world to us to help us continue bringing you compelling stories of survival. If you have any survival stories you'd like to share with us or topics you'd like us to explore, feel free to write us at thecruxsurvival at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for your unwavering support. We're a small team with big aspirations, always striving to bring you stories that resonate. Your weekly tuning in means the world to us, and we're deeply grateful for your continued engagement. Wishing you all a, fin- wishing you all a fantastic week filled with inspiration and adventure. Have a good one, Julie. Thanks for sharing your story. That was good. I'm going to be watching out for lightning strikes from now on. <laughs> <laughs>